Just a, uh, a word uh, this morning, uh, a word of thanks to Nick for sharing with us such a powerful prayer of confession for us all, and I appreciate your leadership with that, particularly today. I also uh, want to mention that I received a call from Nancy Huffman's daughter, Becky, this morning earlier um, with the news that she had passed in the night. Uh, We want to remember that family in our prayers. I expressed my sorrow to her, and she said, oh, no, no, no. She said, this is a good thing uh, for Nancy and also for the whole family who have been waiting with her um, for this time to come. Uh, In fact, you all have a good morning. Nancy will be singing with you, which is a beautiful thought. Also, uh, someone else has been making herself known. She's not in the sanctuary right now, but my granddaughter has been here. I hope that you've heard her, uh, little Ruby. I want to think she's been calling out to me, Papa, but uh, I'm dreaming with some of that. But she is so, so precious to us, and we're glad that Margaret is here, and Rachel, Margaret is is Ruby's mother, and this actually happens to be her birthday too, Lee. It happens to be a very important day, doesn't it? It does. Um, And Rachel is here, who is our precious daughter uh, from Savannah, and we're glad that she's with us today too. Um, As we uh, share together in this scripture today. You remember how the story goes very well, don't you? Um, We began this sermon series last week and looked at the nature of how really Job is this pawn in a celestial chess game. He is one who is under the command of both God and Hasatan, Satan, this adversary who controls his very life, every aspect of it. And in fact, the story as it is pitched to us is that Satan, the adversary, will be able to break the man, this man of God, who looks into the very eyes of God and sees him and understands what God is about. His life has been so very blessed. Satan said, take away a few of those things and let's see if he doesn't curse you to your face. And so he sets about his work. And you know how this goes. His livestock are stolen away or killed. Um, He loses his wealth, his property. Word comes to him that even his children have perished in this terrible situation in which uh, the eldest son's house collapsed on them while they were gathered there because of a great wind that came into the area. It was a devastating loss, and he was grieving, and yet uh, he did not turn away from God, nor did he speak ill of God's having allowed this to happen in his life. Satan, I'm sure, was frustrated by it, and so he was given permission to even do more. He came down and he struck Job, the story goes, with grave illness. He was covered from head to toe with sores. Don't know exactly what that was and how he 
was suffering, but it was enough for his wife to come out and say, why don't you just get it over with, curse God and die? You are in bad shape here. When word reached his friends that lived at a distance, they came to console him. These three men with such strange names, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they came and stood at a distance from Job and could not bear the thought of what had happened. They saw him. They tore their clothes. They tossed dust into the air above their heads and above Job's head, and they grieved with Job. They were so struck with his situation that they spoke nothing to him, nothing for seven days. Oh, if you and I could learn that nature... But you and I, you and I always say the wrong thing when it comes to areas of grief in people's lives. We want to do so well, but we choose words so poorly. Well, God needed him more than you did. Oh, that's supposed to comfort, right? You and I do such damage when we open our mouths where deep grief is present. They stood silently. In their wisdom, they stood silently for seven days and just absorbed the situation and let their presence there be that empathetic comfort that Job needed. Job saw what was going on. He began to speak, and then they began to speak. They abandoned their wisdom. If they had only kept their mouths shut. But they began to speak just as you and I speak. They began to link Job's suffering with sin. What else could they do? Bless their hearts. They meant so well, but they were so bound in their ideas of retributive justice that for every this, there is a that. I had someone say to me recently, I'm an Old Testament kind of guy. And I thought, aren't we all? We're far more comfortable with the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We fit into that world. That's the world we live in. That's where we are mentally. That's where we are in our souls. Because that keeps God in perspective for us. This is the way God works. Cycle after cycle. This comes at Job. From these well-meaning souls. In the fourth chapter, the seventh verse, Eliphaz speaks to Job and he says, think. I'm sure he said that compassionately, as compassionately as he could. Think, what innocent person has ever perished? When have those who do the right thing, when have they been destroyed? And you see how desperate this is. Because even Eliphaz doesn't realize what's going on. When this becomes the lens through which you view the world, everything must fit. 
When you see and I see that there has got to be a connection between what is wrong in the world and how God will do all in his power to punish it. And that's what God is all about. Then you and I are trapped behind a lens that we have chosen to use that defines for us who God is. It was the third cycle. They took their turns, Aliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They took their cycles, their turns talking to Job and trying to explain to him why something bad had gone on. They said to Job, you may not have known it, but you did something wrong. Or maybe you did know it and you did not tell us. Or maybe, maybe just maybe, your sons and daughters did something wrong. You know, they died, they all died together in that house. And you know as well as I, they knew how to party. They knew how to party. God was going to get them. And Job just shook his head because he knew that he had done nothing wrong. He could not see the connection there. And he looked toward God and he begins to respond with this bitter complaint. Today my complaint, he even acknowledges it. Today my complaint is again bitter. My strength is weighed down because of my groaning. Oh, that I could know how to find him and come to his dwelling place. I would lay out my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments and know the words with which he would answer. You see, even Job makes the mistake too. He knows how God is going to react to all of this. He knows what God is going to say before God says anything. That's a dangerous place to be. To think that you know as much as God knows. Come on. Who made who? Even to that point, John Wesley says in his notes on the Bible, he says, this and some such expressions of Job cannot be excused from irreverence toward God. He shouldn't have said it. For which God afterwards, in fact, reproves him. And thank goodness, finally, Job abhorreth himself. This is an honest encounter with despair, friends. Most folk encounter difficult troubles at some point in their lives. I'm sure there are those that squeak by until the very end, and then death comes so suddenly that trouble seems fleeting, even in a heartbeat. But it's not like that for most of us. We bear great burdens. I look among you and I see honest burdens that you bear. Burdens that you have a right to. That you bear deep within your hearts and you carry with you. Some of you tragic choices that you've made earlier on that will forever echo 
Some of you that have dealt with natural disasters, some of you that have dealt with illness and injury, some of you that have dealt with relationships that you thought were solid that have fallen apart. Let me tell you, what you already know, we live in a wounded world. All of us, all of us live in a wounded world. Sometimes there is great reason for this emptiness that we feel. Other times, seems to be no reason at all. When I speak the name Mother Teresa, I know it comes to your mind, this great saint who lived in Calcutta, who gave her life to care for the poor and the dying. She literally was a lady of the gutters. She would go out and rescue people, scoop them up. They weighed nothing and bring them back to this hospital of sorts. It really was more uh, a hospice where she accompanied people to their death in that place and gave them at least the dignity that somebody cared. This little band of women that worked with her, these sisters of charity that gave of themselves, represent for us what it means to be Christian. They just do. In 1997, when Mother Teresa died, it was just heart-wrenching to think that she would leave us by ourselves here. Which is interesting because in 2007, one who had spent 20 years with her and knew her very well and continued to comb through her writings began to share in a published form, Come Be My Light was the name the book was given, her private letters. And in those letters it was shared the doubt that was a part of her life. I mean her regular living. Early on, she had had these visions of God's closeness, Christ's presence with her. But the letters revealed that over the course of her life, that there was this great emptiness and searching on her part to be reunited and to find that quickening of her spirit, that closeness of God, and she never found it. It was this emptiness that ate away at her. St. John of the Cross, this 15th century saint in Spain, also must have dealt with the same thing. He called it the dark night of the soul. I'm not sure where Mother Teresa was 
in how she interpreted what was happening to her. I suspect that she could not see what God could be doing in the midst of the emptiness that she felt. I want to believe that St. John of the Cross saw through even better than Mother Teresa could see that even in the midst of this death-like nature of living, that something new was being born. I spoke to a saint on this earth, now living, not passed away. I told her, because she asked, what are you preaching? I said, Job. She said, that's hard. I said, yes. I said, I'm going to mention Mother Teresa. She said, oh, good. I said, she had doubts. She said, I've read the book. She said, I do too. I said, what? She said, I do too. This saint speaking to me. She goes every morning and spends time in a quiet place in prayer. She said to me, she said, she said, I go there, but she said, I don't always think God shows up. In fact, most of the time, I don't think he does. Occasionally he shows up. And I keep praying for those moments that he will make himself known, but those are few and far between. You and I play with ourselves in the mind to imagine that we come to prayer so easily that we think that God shows up instantaneously when we bow our heads. Oh. This is an affront not only to God, it's an affront to every saint, true saint that's ever lived. Prayer is this place of searching, honestly, searching, searching for the presence of God where there seems to be no light. Where is God when bad things happen particularly? Now, it would have been much easier for you to receive and for me to preach a story about Noah this morning. Oh, how I wish I was preaching the story of Noah. Noah is easy to preach. Noah is easy to preach. Because what happens in Noah is just what I think is going to happen. God crushes the bad people. And we know that's what God's in the business of doing. He crushes bad people. And yet here we are together in Job. 
This is not so easily said in Job. Oh, in Noah, you remember the illustrations in your Bibles by Gustav Doré, the great one who etched these drawings. The one on Noah is called the deluge. I mean, you can get those pictures that he has of the building of the ark, but the deluge is what gripped me. I remember seeing it first when I was about 12 years of age. And when I saw it, I wanted to look at it, then I wanted to look away because I could hardly stand it. But it shows the waters rising. It shows the fear in the people's eyes as they are groveling and as they are being swamped by the waters. Their panic, their deaths impending. It was horrific. This is the way God works. Retributive justice. I tell you, no one lingers too long over the question, why do bad things happen to bad people? Nobody worries over that question at all that I know of. Why do bad things happen to bad people? We know the answer to that. They had it coming. They had it coming. God was going to get them. But this question in Job is not that question. It has nothing to do with that question. This question in Job is, why do bad things happen to good people? It's not so easy to solve this dilemma. Job presses his point on He wants not only to know where God is. He wants to know why. Why? It's not even about justice for him. It's not as if he's asking to have everything restored. He just wants to know why this could happen to him. Look, I go east, he's not there. West, I don't discover him. North in his activity, and I don't grasp him. He turns south, I don't see. He cannot find God anywhere he looks. Oh, the psalmist is singing. Where could I go to get away from your spirit? Where could I go to escape your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I went down to the grave, you would be there too. If I could fly on the wings of the dawn, stopping to rest only on the far side of the ocean, even there your hand would guide me. Even there your strong hand would hold me tight. If I said the darkness will definitely hide me, the light will become night around me. And even then the darkness isn't too dark for you. You know this, Psalm 139. It's almost like hearing Louis Armstrong. I see trees of green. Some days we're like that. But we're not talking about those days. We're talking about the other days. When God seems almost to disappear. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you been there? 
Have you experienced that emptiness? I wonder to myself, if we weren't more aware of Jesus, that we would understand that he went there. And we would remember that on the cross, he said, why have you forsaken me? Quoting scripture, but he did not quote the whole psalm. He could have gotten to a good place in the psalm. But that first verse did it all for him at that moment. Why have you forsaken me? Could you ever say something like that to God? (laughs) I mean, I'd have to think twice. In fact, I'm not sure even thinking twice I could speak to the Almighty in that way. Job goes so far as to say, God has weakened my mind, the Almighty has frightened me. That would be El has weakened my mind and the Shaddai has frightened me. Still, I am not annihilated by darkness. He's hidden deep darkness from me. Such desperation. He speaks this directly to God. St. Patrick, his breastplate's a prayer. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort me, Christ to restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love in me. Christ in mouth of friend or stranger. Searching, searching for God. True lament is human and carries within it, strangely enough, hope. Let me give you permission to talk to God about your feelings, your true feelings. You can shout at him if you want to. I suspect you could even call him names. Don't tell him I said that. But try me on this because Job did all but it. True lament is human and carries within it hope. Even though true lament would never acknowledge that it had within it hope. Job addresses God just as Jesus addressed God. Both cling to God. Out of this fierce hope is indeed born the true house of God, Bethel, and God will make his home among us, even when we don't know it.